Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. very interesting conversation with Carl Scotland who's the agile transformation services practice manager at tech systems global services and he's a master facilitator he shares his career journey very interestingly he starts as a musician and moves on to be a software engineer and today a very successful agile consultant uh, to help organizations as well as people realize how better to write clean code great practices and happier people. He shares this approach of agenda shift and how cynics will really become your biggest supporters. Listen on. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Welcome to Software People Stories. Hi, hi, Gayatri. Um, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. I'd like you, like you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, yeah, so um, my name's Carl Scotland. Uh, I, I'm a I'm a lean agile consultant. I think that's probably what I call myself nowadays. Um, so uh, I I help organisations um, with their transformations. You know, typically moving towards lean and agile ways of working. Um, so at the moment, I work for a company called Tech Systems Global Services. Um, we have a an agile practice, agile transformation services practice. So I, I lead that practice um, in the UK. Um, and in in Europe, um, uh, and um, yeah, I what we do there is is we, you know we have customers, but um, I, I get to work with our our sales team and our internal teams and our internal management. So uh, I kind of feel like it's uh, um, I I really enjoy the role because I'm I'm working with customers, I'm working with a larger team, um, I'm working within our own organisation as well. Wow, excellent! And uh, well, I also know that uh, you are a avid speaker in the speaking network in terms of Agile, and I love your blogs. So I'm going to ask all the questions. Mm -hmm. um, okay. <laughs> Non-controversial. But uh, so um, let me start from the beginning. What got you passionate about software? Why software? When you got into uh, the whole software industry? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, it kind of goes back to when I was a, a, as a child, and I guess growing up at the right time, I, I remember my parents borrowing a an old spectrum zx80 um which was one of the first really cheap home computers and playing around with that and and um i guess i guess enjoying it and getting the the, the magazines and typing in the listings and i didn't really know what i was doing but you kind of picked it up um and then you know parents bought myself and my brother a, a bbc micro so the bbc had a a big campaign around trying to encourage computing and and compartnered with an organization to create this kind of affordable computer that went into all the schools so i did um i did o level computer studies so o levels were the the exams we take in the uk at around 16 those kind of first exams when you start picking i don't know 8 8 9 10 subjects and specializing um and i, I enjoyed it kind of um, I was well. I, I was good at the program side of it. I wasn't so good at the the academic um, theory side of it back then. Um, 
and and then I dropped it. Um, and I didn't didn't go on and do it for A levels. I was uh, I was um, kind of into music at the time, so I, I was at that time I was thinking of pursuing a career that's more in the music and sound recording and kind of that industry. Um, and then when I got to university, so my my music degree at university was a was a science degree in music, so it was kind of computers and music together and and ethnomusicology and sound recording and um, you know, some really interesting stuff. But again, I really enjoyed it. Realised that it wasn't my natural talent compared to my peers, um, particularly if I wanted to go into you know sound engineering and those sorts of things. I kind of realised I didn't have the I didn't have the ear for it. But again, part of the course was was MIDI programming and programming synthesizers, and I suddenly realised actually that's where my that's where my talent is. That's where I'm better than everybody else. Um, so I kind of thought actually let's let's kind of pivot back into that. Did a did a MSc conversion course and and got my first job as a as a programmer. Wow, I wouldn't have known that you are interested in uh, science and. Uh music uh, when i when i when i met you amazing so uh, when you started as a software right i mean when we started writing software software was like having a, a smaller software delivery and ensuring that you get quicker feedback um that that's not under full stack engineer seems like a basic one right we didn't have so many classifications at the mm. time that we started uh, software uh, my one question when uh, when we often see career progressions and uh, uh, people having very fancy titles now, uh, what made all this happen? Did you have a theory on that? Um, I I could probably make up a theory. Yeah, I I I think I mean as you say, you know, back back in the day, um, it was just you just worked on a system, so. Uh, you know, my first job we were doing, we were programming systems for for compact disc interactive systems. It was a Philips system. You just worked on a on a a, a Solaris box. It was one operating system. You you kind of did one or two people did all the work, and you had to know a few things because we had to know a bit about graphics and we had to know know a little bit about what what was going on down at the assembly level and kind of manip manipulating it. Um, I guess I guess for me that was I remember that was the time that the the internet was just starting to kind of take off, uh, and the kind of the very early browsers were coming out, um, and I, I kind of wonder whether that almost that that very first split was the kind of front end back end split where you're kind of doing browser based stuff versus back end, and then that kind of grew out I guess back end into specialising in databases, and and I you know there's probably been a bit of an explosion in languages. Java was you know back then um, I remember. It was, you know, I was doing C. C++ was maybe just coming out. Java was certainly very new back then. Um, so we've had this explosion in languages. Um, and then, you know, just as, I guess, as software technology has started to take over the world, things have got bigger. So then you've kind of get into scaling. And as soon as you get into scaling, that I think that's probably what starts leading to specialization. So just in the way that, you know, we look at the old, you know, the, the waterfall way of doing it, where you, there was specialization in terms of designers, developers, testers, just within the the, the um, developing, we've then specialized. You've, you've kind of got that, that natural instinct we have to specialize into different languages, different technologies, front end, back end, et cetera. So my, my guess is that's probably what happened. Um, and then we've kind of realized actually not, not such a good idea. Um, or, you know, well, let's at least have those people 
working at the same time i mean i just think that you know the, probably the complexity of the technology itself means that to some extent you you have to have some level of specialization um i, I work with a lot of organizations where you kind of go it's the sort of things that they're doing um you can't expect you know a, a person to know that and everything so i add so what, what Okay, what what one of my early jobs, or kind of my my maybe my second job was working for a company was doing neural networks. Um, so so back then, the the neuroscientists that was their specialism, and they were you know they were PhD level clever people. There's no way I was going to know that. Um, now the way we did things back then, we they were separated. We didn't have them on our you know cross functional team, and and I'd love to go back and um do that again and and have a different team structure. Um, but again that. Just the level of, of complexity about what we're doing, I think, encourages it. To that, the extent in which the complexity we have increased, uh, and uh, I understand the specialization and super specialization that we get into, right? Uh, as we do that, uh, how do you build that level of learning in yourself? I know you um, you actually help people build their learning will make organizations as a learning organization. I want to know how you got your own learning uh, curve in place uh, in terms of different languages, different uh, technologies, and uh, to a large extent, different uh, industries also. We cater to different industries as we move forward. How do you uh, build that learning muscle? How did you build your for yourself? For, I mean, I guess for me, the way the way I approach things is is one curiosity. So you know, I I I just I just like learning stuff. I just kind of like getting getting into new things and um and figuring out how things work or why things work, uh, and then how things fit together. So I guess that's the thing that I you know really enjoy is if you kind of pick up a new idea, how does that new idea work with or or um, help you understand your existing knowledge um so kind of constantly constant kind of curiosity and and i think alongside that just comes with a um a recognition that you 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 don't know everything you can't know everything there is lots of stuff to learn um so i you know i remember in the early days of agile um uh mike feathers so mike feathers was kind of um one of the early xps and kind of wrote a great book on legacy code um, sitting with him and he kind of said, so what's, you know, what's Agile 2.0 going to be look like or something along those lines? And at the time I was like, I, I can't imagine anything better than this. Um, but over the years, you know, that I kind of discovered, you know, more about Lean and Kanban and then, um, you know, complexity and, and some of the, the kind of the natural sciences there, um, clean language just you know there's just look, look there's always things that you kind of you, you always i always think just when you think like this is it that we've, we've kind of cracked it there's always something new out there so just just being being aware of that and 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 kind of recognizing and when you see something interesting kind of go okay let's let's dig into that a little bit more um now i guess that's for me that's just maybe that's just part of my personality and the way i am with, with organizations i you know i think sometimes that's a shift for organizations to to um to be open to that idea that we don't know everything um and things are uncertain and unknown and therefore we have to work in a different way to allow some of that knowledge to emerge 
are there any specific tools and techniques that you use to, to throw more light on the unknowns or because things which are unknown, it's not necessarily unknowable, right? Uh, you do some experiments, you create those, uh, you know, areas or pockets in which you try something. Um, do you have some kind of a tried and tested methodology or anything to bring that sort of a learning curve or a curiosity? Because a few people are, in you, even when you look at a bunch of, let's say, 100 um, kids, you find a few of them naturally curious. They keep asking questions and understanding. The few of them are shy, are not necessarily wanting to open. Because uh, to that extent, they feel that if I ask a question, then maybe you're thinking that I don't know this. I mean, there is a vulnerability that comes in place. And there is a level of uh, quote-unquote, um, um, will I be shamed for that? So how do you come off that bridge and say it's all right? okay to ask questions how do you get that you know nah, how do you get them to walk up that bridge yeah so i think there's a there's a bit of a paradox there which is um to help to encourage other people to be curious you have to be curious yourselves um you can't kind of force it on people so so actually it's around the questions that you ask um so i love um clean language as a technique so clean language is a kind of set of very deliberately defined describe um yeah i guess described just defined um questions um which are um yeah they're de designed to be as unbiased as possible um so there's the, kind of i guess you're familiar with open and closed questions so a closed question just has a yes or no answer an open question has an open answer but even an open question can be very biased it can be a leading question where you're you're kind of trying to fish for a specific answer a clean question is 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 um is just as as the like the most open form of question you can get. There's there's so it's things like you know what's that like, uh, you know what would you like to have happen, um when when that happens what happens next. So it's really um um I mean some of the some of the intent behind it is kind of fishing for or looking for for metaphors and kind of but but the way we kind of we use it in the coaching um world or what the way I use it with organizations is just me being open to the fact that um, I don't know what the other person is thinking so I want to find out what they're thinking and what their understanding is um, and actually part of that is being able to I might learn something so when we're going in as coaches it's it's really difficult for us to say well I'm the coach therefore I'm the expert therefore I'm going to tell you what to do and just doing that is is going to close down people's curiosity. So we have to be curious to ourselves that even though we go in with a with a huge amount of experience and knowledge, um, we might not know exactly how to apply that knowledge, or we might not know everything we need to know to help an organisation in this situation. So so then it becomes a, a partnership of, of us kind of saying, well, here's what I've seen in the past, and here's the examples I've seen, but tell me about your situation. Um, tell me about your experiences and then let's kind of work together on, on how we might do something. That is the hardest part, right? In terms of saying, okay, hey, I am showing my vulnerable side and guess what? As leaders, you also have to show your vulnerable side too. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we talk about cross-functional and uh, cross-functional when we say uh, sometimes there is a you know hidden thing that engineering knows everything. That's not true. Even if it's a technology company, engineering doesn't know everything. Uh, yeah, customer behavior, customer service uh, may know different 
they are different perspectives and um, taking your hat or a you know big hat off and say okay um, we are all in the level playing field and getting that i think that is the hardest of all when we look at changes right because uh, i know you worked as a consultant for so many different organizations which organizations do you see that any interesting stories that you want to share on that saying you know um we, they started at a as a learning or a, as a clean organization and they we were able to move it move them towards this sort of a building curiosity building that letting them go uh, of that any stories that you want to share that um i guess yeah I, you know generically my experience is I, i kind of always feel like there's two there's two types of organization that i end up working with uh, one of the ones that they come in and they they think they know what they're doing and they just want you to to help them do it better um and and those are the organizations are sometimes not so open to learning um and and sometimes like hey we we've we're, we're doing agile but our teams are very good at agile can you just come in and make our agile teams better um and and i i kind of find those sorts of engagements very very difficult um because usually you kind of get some resistance there because the teams to the ceo is to somebody that's just kind of been brought in to to crack the whip um and that's what the managers want you to do and there's just the dynamic is is kind of really strange the the, the and then the other talking the organization is is the ones that kind of go hey we know nothing you know we're a kind of a, a blank stick just kind of could just come in and help us we don't care how or why or you know um and those are the ones that are usually kind of then much more open they're kind of more sponge like in terms of of kind of taking on ideas and trying things out the the irony is that that i think the organizations that kind of a you know a, a more of a blank sheet of paper actually are more naturally agile in so like sometimes they like yeah, actually you don't need any help you just need you just need a bit of confidence that actually what you're doing is the right thing the organizations that think they're agile and just kind of need you to kind of crack the whip a little bit actually probably the, the least agile um and they're the ones that need the most help but are kind of the least able to help so there's always kind of a, an interesting paradox there and and i think how you work in those different situations is is um i i guess how you approach them can be slightly different um but yeah i always kind of pre- prefer those ones where there's like just let's just come in and 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 do some stuff and figure out let's try try things see what works see what doesn't work um and and those are the ones that i think have the the, the better stories I, i think um i also find that the the sorts of engagements that i do where i'm you know quite often not not in an organization for a very long time sometimes it feels like you're making very slow progress but actually that's just the nature of change and the nature of transformation and and it's almost like um you, you don't see because the change is happening so slowly you don't really perceive it and then at some point you have to kind of go back and look back and kind of go no actually yeah we've we've actually achieved quite a lot um as opposed to you know some of the organizations where they want you to come in and do a big bang um and just put in a lot of processing and you kind of get a lot of change and it feels like you've done a lot in the short term but actually in the long term just everything fizzles out and you don't really get much change i mean start small and keep progressing seems like a right thing to do right as a wisdom and uh, my experience also is very similar whenever i have had uh, smaller changes and i can literally see them change right in front of your eyes it is very uh, small but at the same time uh, you see the team there is one team member changing or one practice moving and you keep seeing them move 
uh, step by step. Why is it that we are not able to make that happen at a, you know, systemically? Is it psychology that uh, um, bigger is better? Uh, is that uh, consumerism that is coming into play? Why do you think that is it? Um, I, I mean, I guess it's the the, the bigger the organisation, the just the the bigger the system. So, um, um, there's there's just more more things you might need to change. The more you know potential things that there are to change, um, and you know potentially as as a single person, um, you know you can only be in one place at a time. So um, you know then you're into kind of well, do you go work at the team level? Do you go work with the teams? Um, do you go work with the, the the senior managers and the you know the, the the VPs and kind of work with them or in the middle, um, uh, or I guess what I try and do is you know my preference is to try and um, find find work with with other people that can become change makers. So and that goes back to your your kind of point about how do you help organisations become learning organisations. My my approach is I, I want to help those people learn how to learn how to change rather than just implement a change um so so that then gets back to that idea of how do you help help organizations think in terms of running experiments having hypothesis um trying things out seeing what works seeing what doesn't work um and and looking at making um small changes um so you know kind of think about things of you know acting in the present and and making a what what's the next adjacent possibility? What's the next thing we can try that's going to move us one step forward? And if we can help organisations and help kind of more people do that, then hopefully you'll kind of get a bit of a ripple effect. But again, that takes time, um, rather than going in with a with a you know a solution and saying right, I I know what you need to do. You just need to implement this, um, and and that rarely works. Um, even if you come in with the the best idea possible. Um, it's likely to be implemented poorly, and that's not that's not their fault, you know. That's just because these things are hard, or or um, you know, have to be some kind of un unanticipated consequences, or just you know, the situation will have changed by the time you finished implementing it, and it won't be the right thing anymore. Yeah, so I think uh, making those smaller changes and ensuring that they are fit for purpose in terms of. Um, uh, the teams uh, as well as leaders also would want them to be, you know, to that extent, creating their own destiny, right? Um, so any uh, aha moments you've had uh, when teams are changing uh, and uh, they are owning their own um, sort of change makers, whenever you've seen those change makers. Um, how do you, um, I mean, any stories that you want to say, whether that, uh, my, my experiences, the people who are most resistant to change, once they see uh, see the change uh, within their team, they become the biggest advocates. Have you seen those kind of a stories uh, in your career, Carl? Where you you yeah, it up? Can you share something which is obviously not confidential in nature and uh, without referencing? Um, the yeah, yeah. Generally, I mean, it's, so it kind of reminds me, um, Dave, Dave Snowden. Or, and I said something long time the the cynics are your you know your biggest supporters because 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 they're cynical they're passionate about something so so often those people that are, are resistance is because they're there's something there that's important to them um so so it's interesting to to try and understand what that is um but I guess the you know I 
I try and approach things where I, you know, helping people understand what's in it for them. Um, so one of the techniques um, I really like is um, agenda shift. So the the approach agenda shift takes is is one let's kind of look and work out. Um, so uses a lot of clean language. What does what does good look like? What do, you know? What's it like when we're working at our ideal best? Just to kind of get people talking about um, the the positives and the good things and what they would like to have happen. Um, and then starting to talk about obstacles. Well, what's stopping us? What's getting in the way of that? And those obstacles then are the usually the frustrations and the the you know the pain points and the things that people you know the people that people whinge about and and kind of complain about and moan about. And then you can start saying, well, okay, well, what things can we do to start removing those obstacles? So by taking that approach, one, you, you start breaking it down into something very small that you can do now. Um, and start forming, start treating those things as hypotheses, as like we have a hypothesis, hypothesis that if we introduce this technique or change this way of working or, um, you know, change our team structures or something like that, um, it's going to help remove an obstacle. And if we remove that obstacle, then that's going to be good for us. And that's something we want to do. So rather than kind of going in and, and imposing some process or idea or structure on people, that's then going to create resistance because they don't they they don't make that connection. You know, it might it might be the right thing for them, but if they don't make that connection and they and don't understand it, they just see as 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 it being imposed or inflicted on them. So, helping them understand what's in it for them, what they would like to have happen, and and how the changes we're going to make, and actually even having them come up with those changes themselves, those ideas themselves. Now they're, you know, they've got some ownership of it. They want to do it. They know why it's worth doing it. And they're, you know, they're more likely to want to try it. Um, the the trick is, and the, I guess from a coaching perspective, that's where we have the expertise for they what they might want to try. They might not know the things that they would want to try. So we need to kind of then start kind of sharing examples and stories and kind of go, well, this is these these this is the sort of thing I've seen elsewhere. If you want to try that, great. If you if you don't think that's going to work, then let's come up with a, with another idea. And and part of that then is being open myself that, hey, I, I, I might not know all the answers. They might come up with an idea that I don't agree with, but I'm going to let them try it because I don't want to take ownership away from them. Um, I'm going to help make sure that they try things in a, in a safe to fail way or kind of a, a way they're going to learn quickly or we can learn quickly if it's not the right thing. But you know, maybe it turns out is the right thing, and I'm going to learn something. I mean that um, that is the right thing to do, right? We have experience, experiences where this has worked, and ensuring that uh, we also share that in the most easiest way, saying that this has worked and this is harder. Uh, so try uh, these things, but letting them own those ideas. In fact, uh, one of the I mean. Uh, seven, eight years back when the whole coin, word was coined as co-creation. I mean, that really made the whole thing, right? I mean, when you start co-creating the solution along with the customer, it's no longer that, you know, somebody just throwing some concept or idea and that makes yeah. perfect sense. And I think um, uh, what you mentioned is a very clean strategy in terms of saying, okay, what what is the right way to start looking at it and create those building blocks um, of uh, movement or a change or interventions that you want to do. Uh, I know you speak uh, in uh, in the speaking circuit about strategy of uh, change and itself and multiple 
models of strategy uh, at every level. It could be at a team level, overall organization, business unit level, and things like that. Because uh, what got you started in creating these models? Because when you talk about agenda shift itself, it makes perfect sense, right? Where do you want to go, and how do you get there? And uh, understanding the obstacles. So ensuring that uh, that needs a master facilitator, right? Without you, without really being that. So, I mean, what were, what got you started here? To uh, what you are in terms of saying you mm. do all this kind of large scale consulting with a lot of organizations. So, uh, I know you started as a software engineer and then you experimented many of it. But what was the pivotal that shifted you to uh, do the current role? Now we have two parts episode published on Friday and Tuesday. Don't miss to listen part two of Carl Scotland's journey on Tuesday on how and what circumstances led him to become a master facilitator. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.